So I returned about four days ago from being here for the better part of a month uh, from a four-week retreat, which I do most years in March, and was able to devote for four weeks myself to further training, further development, which I think is quite important as a teacher to stay with one's own growing edge uh, and to know what that's about, to know the challenges and ups and downs. And I have always uh, liked the idea of when I go off like this, it's kind of like a, a journey. And I li- I've liked the idea of uh, coming back and sharing some of my experiences and learnings uh, with the group. It's, it's very much like the uh, uh, indigenous tradition of the shaman who goes off on journeys and then comes, comes back and communicates with the community. And I like that. Another variant of that is people who go on vacations and come back and bring a slideshow to inform and perhaps uh, bore and irritate their friends and family. So I don't have uh, a slideshow. It'd be very interesting to you know have a, a meditation retreat slideshow. You know, maybe in 20 years, we'll you know with the brain technology, we'll be okay. Here's Here's Donald with deep concentration. <laughs> here's a brain scan of his mind in, in this state. Oh, here, here's... Anyway, but so mostly it'll be the conventional way of just talking and sharing and telling some stories. So, uh, and uh, particularly have uh, a focus on the return from the retreat and the connection with daily life. So I've wanted to make it not so much about the depths of retreat experience, although I'll say a little bit about that, and more about the connection between retreat and daily life and pointing to some issues which came up on retreat, which are really very much issues for all of us. That'll be my my emphasis. So in the uh, retreat, there were different areas of emphasis uh, for me. Uh, I generally was working to have as much of the time a kind of stability with what we sometimes call awakened awareness or a kind of awareness which is based on a very steady uh, concentration, typically where there are very little or at times no thoughts. So it's a different way of being. And I think most of us probably have had at least glimpses of that kind of awareness, maybe at the you know at very uh, deep experiences in the natural world or in meditation, we at least have glimpses. And so, one of my edges was just to have that be there uh, all the time, and uh, to particularly. Uh, focus on keeping that with non-meditative activities at the retreat, like work meditation, eating, walking, informal time. Because for a long time, my own edge has been, how do I bring the depths of retreat practice into daily life? 
you know, there's a whole sequence of learning and retreats, uh, which sometimes we, we bring under the rubric of purification, where one works through gradually one's stuff. <laughs> and uh, at a certain point, other things start opening up. And uh, for me, the uh, again, the cutting edge for some time has been how do I have the depths of retreat experience more and more present in daily life. And uh, so that was... That was one of my themes, and I've really wanted to keep that theme very alive in the now four days since I've come back and on an ongoing basis. So one of the uh, setups of my own personal retreat that facilitated this emphasis on daily life was after about 10 days of being here, I went back home for a day and a half to have a colonoscopy. which was very exciting. <laughs> but I was particularly intrigued, how would the awareness be? Driving, going home. I stayed at, I was about home, away about a day and a half. You know, how many of you have done a colonoscopy? It's a very, very wonderful modern procedure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, taking this, you know, laxative, which is, they've really improved it. So I've did, this is my second colonoscopy. I did another one about 11 years ago. And this is, they've really improved the laxative technology some. So, so. anyway. Uh, and then actually being with the procedure, and I was able to really to have a pretty stable awakened awareness during the entire procedure, even though they told me that I, you know, I was sedated and I wouldn't really be that aware, but I, I was for the whole, the whole time. That was interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I may not be able to convey my excitement, but... <laughs> I mean... So that was, part of, that was part of my retreat, a visit to, you know, downtown Oakland and the Kaiser, the Kaiser uh, Hospital and so forth. Anyway, so... So daily life practice was a theme and has been very much a theme since I came back. And another theme was really looking at uh, what we sometimes call emptiness. You know, another way of talking about that is bringing the awareness to a, a non-conceptual mode of being with phenomena to the point where one can start to see the constructed nature of experience and to do that increasingly on a moment-to-moment basis. And we can start to see how our experience isn't all that different from uh, the construction of film where, you know, it's 24 frames a second and it creates the illusion of continuity and solidity but it's actually made up of mind moments that are sort of stitched together. And so part of the exploration was also continually exploring that constructed nature of what seems to us to be a solid, permanent world. And that's a, it's a long-time theme of meditative traditions and to see how we solidify experience, particularly through, through concepts. And that, again, that's very, uh, very... Uh, intriguing area of exploration. Um, 
And all during this exploration, of course, I had some you know, background awareness of the uh, crises of our times. That's part of the background, you know, part of the background understanding that at the time of looking more deeply, there's also, there are also these uh, challenges we face, you know, that came up in the sharing earlier this morning. Uh, and, um, you know, so there's something about this very compelling nature of the inner journey on the one hand and the very compelling nature of responding to our crises on the other. You know, and my own interest has been to bring those together. And I think it's actually what we most need in our times because I don't think that we can handle the challenges of our times without also combining responding to those challenges with the process of awakening and developing the capacities of mindfulness and care and so forth. And so so I've been thinking about a term which I'm calling double awakening, (laughs) both the individual awakening and the more collective awakening is really what's called for. And I think I may give some further talk, maybe develop that in more depth in maybe when I come back for three weeks in a row later later in April. Because I think there are ways in which without combining them, meditation can run into certain difficulties or challenges like privilege and self-centeredness and kind of aversion to the world and so forth. But also, obviously, people trying to respond to the crises without, we might say, spiritual resources run into a whole set of problems as well, such as attachment to views, being overwhelmed, burnout, uh, not being able to deal with difficult emotions, uh, polarization, lack of empathy for the opponent, all sorts of things, right, that we sometimes talk about. So uh, that is something that was, that was on my mind, uh, or the, the boundaries of my mind. It was part of the background and so forth. Um, so I'll say a little bit more about that towards the end of the retreat. The... Um, wanted to just mention some themes, and these are particular, some further themes that came up in the retreat, and I'm particularly focusing on ones that are more connected with daily life, not so much with the details of more focused or deeper retreat experiences, but more themes that came up that are related to daily life, which would be very much related to what we deal with every day. And that's my, you know... I, that's, that was my, my choice. As, but, but really anything would be up for grabs if you want to ask questions later. <laughs> okay, um, And so I think first of all I, I wanted to reflect on a model of development which I talked about in the, uh, really the introduction to uh, our practice at the beginning of the meditation session which is that there's a um, I think there's a, there's a I think a model of how we develop and train, which is helpful to look at more clearly, and which uh, I think makes sense of what we're doing wherever we are, whether we're at more beginning levels, intermediate, or more advanced. That there's there's a model which I think is helpful to know about. Uh, you know, essentially, each of us, for whatever reason, begin to have some interest in the inner dimension of things. 
you know, and just, and, and the larger questions of how we live, how we act in the world. We, we open up to what, you know, Socrates called 2,500 years ago, the examined life. Remember, he said the unexamined life is not worth living once. Uh, and we, we look to see how am I living? What's the nature of my mind? What are my assumptions? What's the basis for what brings me well-being and happiness as opposed to suffering? For whatever reason, we start that inquiry. Maybe it's because we just have curiosity and interest. Maybe we meet someone who strikes us and says, oh, I want to be more like that person. Maybe we have suffering and, and we say, is there some other way? than just to get caught in this repetitive pattern that is unsatisfactory. Uh, for whatever reason, or maybe we have some experience or insight of opening. You know, maybe we go into the mountains for several days and, and we just have an experience of unity with the natural world. We say, whoa, what was that about? How can I develop that? You know, each of us, for whatever reason, have some reason that we begin to look more deeply. You know, and then we really begin, we might say, we hopefully, when we're very fortunate at this time, to have resources like Spirit Rock. You know, Spirit Rock didn't exist uh, 25 years ago. Right? Uh, or I should say, Spirit Rock existed, but the center didn't exist. And Spirit Rock and the organization uh, didn't exist uh, 40 years ago. 50 years ago, there were, you, if you wanted to learn meditation, you really couldn't do so. You know? And so we have these resources that we don't have now. I met people who wanted to learn this way, who, when I was first practicing, like in my 20s, I met people who were maybe in their 50s or 60s who didn't have good resources but were on this journey, and they got stuck and they suffered and they did not have good teachers, and so forth. And we're very, you know, we have real opportunities now that we didn't have collectively 50 years ago with, you know, know, at least in a mainstream, more mainstream way. And so, for whatever reason, we begin and we say, I want to do some training. And maybe it's at a beginning level where we go to a class and maybe we do 15 minutes of meditation, I remember one of my early teachers, Joseph Goldstein, he was in Thailand in the Peace Corps, and his first meditation session, which he invited some of his friends to watch, he set the timer for five minutes. <laughs> he had people sit around and watch him meditate. <laughs> you know? And uh, you know, later he moved on to like three months. <laughs> you know, but first thing was five minutes. So maybe we start, and it really doesn't matter. The, first, the main thing is to begin, and we start, and then we, we the, the essence of training is that we find a simplified situation, a training situation, which is, this is the case in any kind of training, music, athletics, whatever. We have a simplified training situation where we have a kind of a protected environment and we have guidance, right? That's the essence of it. You know, and it could be coming here, once a week, it could be doing a retreat, it could be creating 
a quiet space at home where we sit for 20 minutes or 30 minutes every day. We create that kind of, and we can think of that as training. That's our training time. And we develop, and we develop in some of the areas I mentioned earlier. We develop in the ability to settle the mind, to concentrate, to, uh, to open the heart, to work with what comes up, uh, to develop mindfulness, to develop insight, to read and hear some of the teachings, to develop the perspectives on the nature of uh, suffering, what causes suffering, the different kinds of insights, and so forth. We hear, we hear teaching. We may also, many of us, have uh, related training, not so much in the traditional meditative areas, but maybe we engage in psychological learning or psychological training. We may work with a therapist or a group, and we learn in related ways that open up psychological dimensions, or maybe we work with trauma or maybe we work with social conditioning. Maybe we are in a women's group or a men's group or look at conditioning around gender or race or age or sexual orientation and all that. And we, but the essence of that is that we need this protected environment in which we learn and we have some guidance typically. Um, and then we learn, we develop, and we stabilize the capacities, we, whatever we are, we develop some, some degree of stability. And then we gradually also, on the basis of that training, we bring out these capacities in daily life. You know, uh, we bring out more mindfulness in daily life. We bring out more heart qualities. And, we, and a lot of what we explore on these Wednesday mornings are ways to do that in daily life. We, we look at both the training context, as it were, and the daily life context, and we bring out all of these qualities increasingly, and that's not easy, right? How do you bring qualities of mindfulness and awareness into the various parts of daily life, into activities, into relationships? Sometimes we need special training, like in speech or communication practice, or working with conflict, and so forth, or we need special, uh, special focus. Um, and so we again we try to bring that uh, bring that uh, increased uh, capacity into daily life, and then we also we also uh, keep on deepening in the training context. And this is where, after a while, we may find we need the retreats to go more deeply. We need to do several days of training, not just twenty minutes a day in order to go more deeply and to actually develop in some of these capacities. That's why we offer both beginning opportunities and intermediate and, and then uh, retreat context and so forth. Um, and so uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about bringing some of my own learning into some of these aspects of daily life. And I wanted to talk about a few themes. And I, I drew up a list of about... Uh, 20 guidelines for my next integration of my own learning with daily life. And I'm going to talk about a few of those. So I have this, I have this, um, I have this instruction, instruction sheet with these 20 guidelines, which I've committed to follow, which aren't all easy. And that's for me, and uh, I'll share some of those with you. Uh, and again, the emphasis on bringing uh, kind of uh, deepened awareness from retreats and formal meditation to daily life has been a theme for a long time. 
and some of these are guidelines, and some of it's asking, like, what kind of supports do I need? And some of it's actually about behavioral changes. Because to some extent, to bring, th- bring our practice in daily life, sometimes we have to change the way we live. Anyone notice that? <laughs> and some, of, some of our ways of life are not sustainable. And I'll, I'll talk about some of that. So the first area, I think I want to talk about three themes. Uh, the first is information and level of information that we take in. And the second is doing. And the third is ethics. Or the third is intention, and the fourth is ethics. So I'll talk about four areas. Okay? So the first is information. Um, how many of you have been on a retreat? Yeah, so about a little over half of you. Maybe you've had the same experience I've had, but every retreat that I've done, I say to myself, this simplicity of life is so beautiful. I do too much. <laughs> Has anyone had that insight? Yeah. I do too much, and it makes it harder to be aware. I do too much, and, it be, and you know, sometimes I live with too much clutter, too many things, too much information, and it's hard to have the fruits of awareness, mindfulness, and so forth be there with that level of information. And that level, you know, and I'll talk also about doing in, as the next theme. And, and for me, the, the joy of simplicity on retreat is very striking. Be, having a, you know, a much more simplified life that's really focused around development of awareness. Again, it's training, you know, and I think ultimately, uh, you know, it's not like we're, I want to just become a, a monk or a hermit and get rid of the internet and relationships and so forth. <laughs> but, but there's still a question of this level of information and so much happening, right? And, and also just almost like, you know, the, the clutter of everyday life, you know, on three or four different levels. And, you know, for me, I was particularly reflecting uh, I take in a lot of information, you know, particularly having the interest and in connecting inner work with the social situation. I take in a lot of information. I was reflecting, you know, like many of you in the Bay Area. I mean, I, I listen to uh, uh, KPFA a lot, the radio, sometimes NPR. Uh, I look at the New York Times online most days. I get the San Francisco Chronicle. I look at a few websites like The Nation, I listen to Democracy Now. Anyone relate to at least some of those news sources? <laughs> right? And so, a lot of information. And I, I really had to ask myself, do I need that level of information to be well-informed? And my answer was no. And I thought, I can do very well with one-third of that level of information. Because it, can, it, you know, it has effects, Right? And it has effects, all that information. You know, it, first of all, it keeps the conceptual mind going a whole lot of the time, right? And it makes it harder to have mindfulness and awareness. And I thought, I can really live not having information be in my life so much, right? 
which of course it's not on retreat generally, um, but it is, it is there in daily life. I thought, so it's really a question, what do I really, what do I really need? I came to the conclusion, and I've been following this in the four days I've come back, so I'm actually listening to the radio way, way less. And I'm saying, you know, and I, you know, again, I think it's, a, for me, it's a matter of probably 40 minutes a day I can get adequate information rather than having three hours or four hours of information, you know. And so there, there's that kind of question. And, you know, uh, and that manifests concretely in a few different ways. Uh, maybe like you, when I'm eating a meal by myself, I generally have at least one day, one meal a day where I'm mindful and I do actually do loving-kindness practice, but other meals, if I'm eating by myself, I will actually look at a newspaper or do some reading. How many of you have that pattern? And I decided not to do that, to actually have it be more like a mindfulness session, which is what we do on retreat. And you, know, you can see where this is going. It suddenly sets up, rather than just have one 20-minute period a day, I might have now you know, four or five or six 15, 20, 30-minute sessions. It changes everything in terms of awareness. And I get adequate information. Because there is, I think we know, with information, there's a habitual aspect to it. It's, it has more the aspects of habit and even addiction. Right? We get addicted to information and we have habits where it's almost like we want to fill up the space with information. There's almost like some way, oh, you know, I mean, there are different aspects to it, but there's a way that we get addicted to information. Does anyone relate to this? You know, I mean, I, when I work with people one-on-one, -on -one, a certain, you know, it doesn't come up all the time, but a certain number of people talk about their addiction to their, to their, to their smartphones, right? And particularly people, when they first get on it, they really notice the addictive quality to this. And uh, I, I looked at an interview with a, a researcher named Adam Alter. You know, I, lo I looked at this uh, just actually yesterday and today. It's from an interview uh, that he did, which is from the... If you want to look it up and get more information. <laughs> About too much information. Okay, that's your choice. It's, there, there's a really interesting interview with him in the March 7th uh, New York Times. Uh, and he wrote a book called Ir uh, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. And I wanted to say a little bit about this because for me this is something to be aware of. So there's both the question of what do I need and what are my habits? Because this was really apparent being on retreat and then coming back. You know, I could really notice that you know, wanting of the information at times. And I've, uh, so this is one of the behavioral changes. There, there are different changes. So can I live with less information? And it's interesting, he, uh, Adam Alter reported that um, uh, there are schools in Silicon Valley where they actually don't permit the students to use uh, electronic technology. And guess what? The students who are there 
are 70 to 75 percent the children of tech executives. What does that say? They know something about that, right? They know something about that. So just a few, I'll make a few comments about, this is from the interview with Adam Alter. He said, um, in the past, we thought of addiction as mostly related to chemical substances, heroin, cocaine, nicotine. Today, we have the phenomenon of behavioral addictions where one tech industry leader told me people are spending nearly three hours a day tethered to their cell phones. Teenage boys sometimes spend weeks alone in their rooms playing video games. Um, other things, 60% of the adults in one survey said that they keep their cell phones next to them when they sleep. Right? Uh, in another survey, half the respondents claim that they check their emails during the night. Right? Uh, these new gadgets turn out to be the perfect delivery service for addictive media and so forth. Um, today, we're checking our social media constantly, which disrupts work and everyday life. He said, the definition I give of addiction is something that you enjoy in the short term, but that undermines your well-being in the long term. Right? That's his definition of addiction. And that, that you do compulsively anyway, so it has a habitual or compulsive quality to it. He says, we're biologically prone to getting hooked on these sort of experiences. If you put someone in front of a slot machine, the brain will look qualitatively the same as when they take heroin. If you're someone who compulsively plays video games, not everyone, but people who are addicted to a particular game, the minute you load up your computer, your brain will look like that of a substance abuser. That's, of course, that's partly us, isn't it? Right? When we're really, really got to go there. Um, we are engineered in such a way that as long as the experience hits the right buttons, our brains will release the neurotransmitter dopamine. We'll get a flood of dopamine that will make us feel wonderful in the short term, although in the long term you build tolerance and you want more, and so forth. So, and then he, I'll just finish. He said, if you were... He was asked the question, if you were advising a friend, on, and he admitted to his own habits as well. He said he's particularly hooked on emails. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. If you were advising a friend on quitting their behavioral addictions, what would you suggest? I'd suggest that the person be more mindful about allowing tech to invade your life. You should cordon it off. I like the idea of not answering email after six at night. You might want to try these out. In general, I'd say find more time to be in natural environments and try sitting with someone face-to-face -face in a long conversation without technology in the room. <laughs> there should be times of the day when it looks like the 1950s. <laughs> when you're sitting in a room and you can't tell what era you were in. You shouldn't always be looking at screens, right? Okay, so that's one, that's one area, information, right? So very, that's something that, again, was, I was very conscious of, and I've decided to really shift the level of information I get and so forth. So that's one area. Related to this is, an, is something that is connected with that, which is the whole quality of doing. And 
even some of us here, I think some of us here are retired. I won't ask the question publicly, but many of you who are retired say, my God, it's just as busy as when I wasn't retired. Does anyone relate to that? <laughs> and, and so related to this compulsion about information, there's a compulsion about doing that I could feel. The, the times in the retreat when it was hardest to stay present and with awareness were when there was some kind of doing. Like, and, when, and when there was some mental quality, but also some pressure. And I could feel the residues, even on a retreat, at moments of rushing. Can you imagine that? You're in a retreat, and in a sense, there's nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to be, and I can still notice at times there's rushing. What am I rushing for? Well, it's obvious because it's a habit that's deeply entrenched, that's surfacing, right? And I can, you know, I've noticed that coming back, you know, it's like we, we see this in all sorts of areas of our life. One of the most central ones is driving, right? You can really notice. Do you notice some compulsive quality of, I got I to gotta get there, got to do that? And um, not everyone, maybe, but a lot of us, right? And it, I've noticed that that quality of doing and the compulsive quality in a few different areas. And then what can we do? In driving, I've noticed, can I take driving as a place to cultivate awareness? Can I, you know, and I've talked sometimes about my own practices in driving in the last year or so around awareness and around generosity. Can I develop generosity towards other drivers? Oh, that person who really wants to cut me off. Generosity practice within the limits of safety. <laughs> you know, can I say, oh, you must really be in a hurry or, or at least you may have, must have bad habits. Uh, let me let you in, you know, without... Right? Can I develop, you know, and... Can I notice, you know, and, and again, there are some behavioral changes which are necessary. Can I set up my driving so that when I want to get someplace, everything doesn't have to go perfectly for me to be on time? Right? How many people set it up like that? And that, that puts in a certain amount of tension, doesn't it, right? Okay, I gotta, everything's got to go. If, I have, you know, if, that, if that driver with the cell phone makes me wait five minutes, five seconds at the light, Something in me goes into minor crisis mode, right? Isn't that... Isn't that so, there, so we're talking about these deep aspects of our conditioning, right? And I think there, you know, we have these particular conditionings in our culture. Other people have different ones in different cultures. But can we, can we look at that? Can we look at that rushing? So behaviorally, it means, can I set it up so that I give some slack in terms of time when I set up a, like, coming here to Spirit Rock, you know? And that permits more ease, right? So it takes both, right? It takes both awareness, but we have to actually shift some things that, that make it possible to, to work like that. And so I noticed also there are qualities in which the mind, when it gets immersed in something, tends to lose awareness. And that's more complex. Can I actually do an activity and, you know, have something in my mind telling me what to do, but also try to be aware. That is, that is a deeper practice. That's a more challenging practice. But that was also one of the horizons. 
can I have more ease with time? And maybe I'll give a whole talk on time because it's a really fascinating area, isn't it? How we construct time, the cultural constructions, the personal constructions. How do we work with time? And how does that get in the way of awareness and working with our deeper intentions to have love, to have awareness, to have wisdom? It's a really interesting area. Um, and so what, what to do? <clears throat> what to do with, with time and with doing? Again, having some boundaries, like was mentioned by uh, Adam Alter. <clears throat> have some boundaries around the use of technology. How, you know, a lot of these are out there in the culture. You know, some of them are for actually sleeping well. People recommend that you really have a, a cooling down time, right? Can you, you know, I've taken after the retreat <clears throat> to really not do anything actively within, you know, sometimes it doesn't work, but within the limits of my choices, like after 8 or 8.30, right? And can I have an hour and a half or two hours of cooling down, you know, for me, maybe more meditative, maybe, and not doing, not doing anything electronic, right? And not bringing in new information, maybe after 6 or 7 p.m., right? Again, there are circumstances where that doesn't work, but some of this is within our control, right? So can, you know, and I, I've talked sometimes about the fact that I do a Sabbath day once a week. Can I have a day when I'm not on technology? Can I have a, or at least a half a day, or at least a, a period of time which is regular? This will help, right? Can I have the experience of being what, what these days is calling un, being unplugged on retreats or a Sabbath day or whatever, whatever? Um, you know, and... Sometimes do a Sabbath day where you actually have your day be somewhat like your ordinary day, but have more periods of practice. Do one day a week in which you do three or four 45-minute sittings and see the insights that come, see the perspectives that come. Do that once a week. You know, maybe you still get things done. But, you know, and this really... Um, you know, ultimately, it's not ultimately about being busy, it's really about the state of our awareness. But for our training, I think we need to be less busy. Ultimately, it's possible to be really busy and really aware, but it's advanced practice. <laughs> I remember being at a retreat uh, quite some years ago where I uh, did several weeks of retreat in Massachusetts, and then I worked in the kitchen for four days. And I remember, and the kitchen got really, really busy. And I remember one day we were serving tacos and there was all these condiments and really complicated meal, uh, a lot to do. And I was running around doing things, but I was really aware. Really, really busy, but the awareness was present. And so that, you know, and maybe we can sometimes explore when we're really busy. Can I really like be in the hurricane, so to speak? but still be more like the eye of the hurricane where there's stillness, even though there's a lot of activity. Try that sometimes. Because I don't think ultimately it's about the busyness, but for the sake of training, we often need to be less busy. Does it make sense? You know, because it's, we're not going to learn if we're overly busy. And that really relates to uh, the third point, which is that of intention, which is a big part of our practice. It's like, what really is my intention for my life? And again, this comes up in retreat a lot. 
how much do I really want to awaken? What do I need to let go, go of sometimes to have that intention be more in my life? You know, and it's, you know, having that intention so much for four weeks, it's not hard or it kind of comes with the territory when I leave the retreat just to look out and see people are just on automatic. Large, you know, most people are, seem to be on automatic, compulsive, half-conscious or unconscious, right? Just living their lives, maybe doing good things, bad things, but there's not so much awareness, right? And how many people really have their lives really centered, you know, a lot of the day on one's core intentions for awareness, for acting ethically, for wisdom and so forth. So I find that the retreats really are asking me more and more, what do I want? And this is a question which comes up as we do further training. How do I want to organize my life? How, how should I live? You know? And we, we, we see, you know. And this is, this is an old story. I found this uh, passage from a text from the 19th century in Tibet. You might think everyone in Tibet's kind of uh, focused on awareness. This is from a text from uh, Dujon Lingpa. This was towards the end of the 19th century. These days, when the five kinds of degeneration are on the rise, <laughs> ordinary beings are without exception rough, wild, and under the sway of very powerful negative karma. Fixated on the mere passing dream of the human lifetime, they make long-range plans as though they were going to live forever and turn their backs on the pursuit of something meaningful uh, for the future. For this reason, it seems to me that those who earnestly seek liberation and omniscience are no more numerous than daytime stars. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So it's really a question of, you know, what do I want? And it's also, I was thinking again of the larger social setting. We're in, a, we're in a world where this level of unconsciousness is actually getting institutionalized. Yeah, where we have greed, hatred, and delusion are becoming institutionalized more and more. Literally, you know, like people, you know, like people who know nothing about something are suddenly in charge of whole areas, right? Uh, you know, del- that's delusion institutionalized, right? Uh, and that is dangerous, obviously. You know. And it's, anyway, that could be a focus of another, another uh, series of talks. And so it's really, we can really ask the question, you know, what are my priorities? What do I want? What's my mode of being right now? You can ask that 10 times during the day. Am I aware or I, am I on uh, automatic? And keep coming back to that. And just the essence of the practice isn't blaming ourselves for being off. It's noticing and coming back as much as possible without judgment. I think I'll stop there. Maybe I'll, I'll have, uh, just I'll end with one quote. I had another section on uh, living ethically which, which, which is important, but I think, I think it might be good to, we can have a nice chunk of discussion time if I finish now. And so I'll just end with um, a very short passage. This is also from the Tibetan tradition. And in the Tibetan tradition, there are instructions which are sometimes called uh, pith, P-I-T-H, pith instructions, which, which um, communicate a whole perspective 
in one sentence. And I'll end with such a kind of instruction. This is, again, this is from the end of the 18th century, but it's a very simple instruction. This is from the uh, uh, great meditator and teacher named Shabkar. There's, there's a very interesting uh, biography of him. I think it's maybe, maybe autobiography, yeah. Uh, called The Life of Shabkar, S-H-A-B-K-R. And, and in that, there's this one line, which is really a summary of my talk. One sentence. Shabkar. Let your life and practice be one. Let your life and practice be one. Thank you. Any any reflections, questions, comments we have? We have actually I've I've given more time than I usually do, which which I which I like. Maybe I'm not trying, because one of the things, one of the insights that I had, you know, related to the doing, I don't think I mentioned this explicitly, is, maybe I did, was not trying to do too much. This can happen in a talk. I try to cover too much. (laughs) Run out of time for discussion. (laughs) Okay. Any, uh, we have a microphone, but we have any reflections or questions, comments, sharing of your own experience that related to what I was talking about? We have, yeah, Mark and then Adrian. Yeah. Not that I have something profound to say, but I, I was struck by your remark that, uh, you know, our, our, our perceptions are like the movies. That is to say, everything is the, these 12 or four, 24 images, whatever they are, that pass across the screen. But really, they don't exist as a, as a reality. It's a constructed reality. Yeah. <clears throat> and that my own perceptions there similarly are like that. And it, it just struck me as a something to think about. Yeah, it's, uh, it's part of the, we might say, some of the deeper training in meditation. You know, and sometimes we experience this. Um, but but uh, the, you know, we know from psychology, for example, that children have to learn to uh, construct the world. You know, that uh, the psychologist William James said that uh, children, before they learn the uh, conceptual model of a given culture, they live in, they live in a buzzing, booming confusion. That was, that was his language. And that uh, to actually come to uh, have a stable world with the objects as their developed by a particular culture and have a sense of time and space and so forth, those are developmental achievements. Children don't have them at birth. They have to learn concepts. They have to, you know, I remember, you know, I remember being with my nephew when he was, I don't know, I forget how old he was, but I, the full, there was a full moon and I pointed out the moon to him and it was his first sense, oh, this, that phenomenon is called moon. 
and it's solid. He said, moon. <gasps> you know, it's a very interesting moment. And children learn that. And we know developmentally also that the sense of time, you know, is something that's rather late in development. And there are other, there are other capacities which develop sequentially. Uh, and we also know that different cultures organize the world differently, right? Right, they, so the story about Eskimos have 40 words for snow, right? We see snow. <laughs> they see all sorts of distinctions, right? And we know that, you know, and you can know that sometimes when you live in different cultures, you can know, oh, it's a little organized a little bit differently. You know, some similarities, but... And, and then there's also the sense that what happens in meditation is we learn how to experience increasingly in a way that's not so dominated by concepts, which is uh, beautiful. And also, interestingly, a lot of the artists of the late 19th century, 20th century, particularly think of the Expressionists, people like Cezanne and some of Monet and some of those uh, European painters, they were also interested in the, in the phenomenon of can I experience the world in a preconceptual way? So if you think of those paintings, you know, where, they're, where it's sort of, uh, they're splotches, right? They wanted to get away from the so-called realistic form of art where everything is really solid, right? Which was the dominant form of the first part of the 19th century. And they actually wanted to see the world before it's too organized conceptually. What is that like? And that they actually tried to do that. They didn't have meditative training, but they tried to do that in their own ways. Meditative training takes us to be able to experience the world, we might say preconceptually, or even we might call it even transconceptually, because we, you know, we don't lose the conceptual ability, but we can see the world. And, and I think it's not an uncommon experience when you do your first retreat to have a moment, you know, and it permits you to actually go to see a sunset and actually be more with the colors and the forms and not so much saying, oh, this is a really cool sunset, let me take a picture, right? You know, but you actually can relate to the sunset in a more direct way, not so dominated by concepts. And so that's part of our training. And when you take that further, you, you get to a point where it's partly deepening in concentration. Because when you have deepened concentration, one's mind isn't dominated by concepts in the same way. And so you, you, uh, you know, the part of the training is you have both a depth of concentration, so the mind can be more directly with things, and, you, and then you have the ability to uh, be both very present and non-conceptual. And that tends to open up experience in a way which is not dominated by concepts and constructions. And one can see actually sometimes the construction's just starting to develop. You can be with that sunset and then watch thoughts developing about it, right? But then, okay, I can go back and just be with it in a different way. You know, be with the forms and watch the concepts developing. And it's a very interesting experience because you, you start to see things more as constructed. It can be a little bit disorienting at times because the solidity of the world isn't there in the same way. You know, and it's... Uh, but, you know, if we ground, the, the training is that you ground all of this in compassion and wisdom. So you basically have 
orientation as you go into that deeper experience. That's the short, I could give a series of talks on that, but that was the short version. <laughs> yeah. um, so we had Adrian, and then the corner, and then in the back. So let's, maybe I'll try to give shorter responses. So, we have more room. so I, um, I'm one of the retirees. Yeah. And uh, I was very much aware in the last couple of years how happy I am yeah. not to have to be in certain places, not to, to have a more laid-back life. And yeah. I was very much aware that it was contributing to my happiness. And then Trump happened, and I, I, my past work as an activist seemed... I was called to re- revive that. Yeah. And so in the past six months, I've been feeling... Um, overwhelmed and busy and and filling up a whole lot of time with work, which I considered to be... I wanted to do the work. I liked doing the work. Um, I felt called to do the work, uh, but I was feeling getting to feel oppressed by it. Yeah. Um, and I read something... Some, it, it, But the work was motivated by um, the violence that I was feeling... Uh, need to be needed to be confronted against certain groups, uh, and so uh, I read something in my busyness that said that violence, that busyness is a violence, yeah. is a form of violence, and that I realized that I was colluding <laughs> with some of the energy of the violence I was trying to work against, yeah. um, and. Once I, I read that and I, I identified with it, I started to think, what can I do to keep working but not be part of this violence, the general energy of violence in the world, but it, the violence that's coming towards me? And so what I did was I said to myself, I can only plan two things, two events that I can do in a day. Yeah. And one of them might be going to the grocery store. Yeah. But, you know, one, one uh, meeting or, and one planning session or something. And so that has really helped me that, to be able great. to see that and then actually make a plan around it. Great. Yeah, so it's very, very similar to my guidelines. You know, some of this is going to be very personal, right? It's like, what really makes this work for me? And you're finding your own guidelines. And I think, yeah, I mean, using the word violence, I think, can be helpful. The, you know, I sometimes quote, there's a very beautiful passage from Thomas Merton, the Catholic uh, contemplative, in which I, I probably can paraphrase it, but he more or less says there's a contemporary form of violence involved with overwork. You know, trying to do too many things for too many people, and it's particularly, uh, particularly uh, a danger for activists. Right, and maybe I can bring in that passage, but, but that's more or less the the idea. And you know, already you can you know can hear a lot of people who are trying to respond to the current situation are feeling overwhelmed and burning out. Even you know, obviously, people need to be sustained, have something sustainable for quite a while. Right? And so, I think asking those questions and asking. Uh, yeah, yeah. Again, you can ask on different levels. What level of information do I need? What level of doing is sustainable? Right. And of course, there are sometimes real emergency situations, you know, where, you, where it's a little bit different. But uh, you have to really uh, 
look at that and it sounds like you're doing that. So I think that's, uh, you know, we sometimes have need, somehow need to find a way to respond, but also to um, keep awakening and have it be sustainable. It's not easy, right? But I think that personal uh, inquiry, like you've done, is is key. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Adrian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, following up on what she was saying, also is that in my lifetime, it's been three addictive events that. One is the um, O.J. Simpson. Another one was the Nixon impeachment. And now we have the Trump phenomenon. And the whole news structure is set up to be addictive. I, I watch CNN, and everything is breaking news. And you go, oh, Christ, it's breaking right. news, you know. And there's nothing different from the day before. So that's the kind of addictive quality. That's, right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, you might consider how you get your information, because I think there is, you know, Breaking news, and I think I, I personally actually I do not watch television. Yeah, I mean I get my information other ways, and uh, it seems to have a significant addictive quality. Yeah. Um, so so that's another question. Yeah, and maybe last one. Yeah. Thank you. Very much related to these other comments. I've been. The phrase that came to mind was information overload you yeah. were talking about. And, and I'm a little bit in a quandary because it seems to me sometimes our human brains are not wired to be aware of every painful situation in every community all over the world yeah. concurrently. Yeah. I think that it, there was surely suffering 500 years ago, but the suffering we knew about was more in our community yeah. or in our family. And I sometimes think about whether it would be wiser for me to restrict the geography of my concern. And then I think, no, but we're all in this together in one planet and one climate change and so forth. Yeah. So I'm a little bit just in that inquiry. I don't, then I think, should I res- perhaps restrict my activism or concern to to a topic? Should it be more around women's rights or climate change? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm trying to find, I think, some formula with which to make it mani- more manageable. Yeah. Yeah, I, think, I think you uh, framed it in a way which, uh, for me, points to some, some aspects of resolution. Because I think you, uh, you know, the fact is that there is this uh, vast amount of information, something that I have found on my return, again, I mean, um, online sources are interesting in that you do have, uh, like something like the New York Times, you do have headlines, and you can get a sense of what's happening without, you know, just in 10 seconds, right? And how much depth do I need? Do I need to know this? Do I need to read the San Francisco Chronicle and really know the details about this crime in this place, right? You know, do I really, what do I need to know? And the key thing I think you asked was about wanting that sense of connection. Uh, and so the question is, how can I keep that sense of connection and not be overloaded? How can I keep the connection with communities maybe outside my own? You know, whether in this country or overseas, and what's going to help there? And, and that might be a personal answer. Maybe there's a meditation that you do, you know, where you just meditate on interconnectedness for 10 or 15 minutes every day. Maybe that 
will help there because that, having that sense of interconnectedness is very important, right? And how can I do that <clears throat> and not lose that even as maybe I restrict the level of information? Something like, something like that where you, where you because you you've identified something very valuable, how not to lose that while not, not being overwhelmed. So it's, so it's not easy, right? Okay. Let's end uh, just with um, a time for personal reflection. What has been helpful for me from our session today? Maybe from the content of the talk or just something else, maybe not even related to the content that occurred to me during the meditation or the discussion, the talk. <clears throat> and what, what's been helpful? And then what, do I have any intentions going forward from this morning? And then we end with uh, the traditional way of ending, which is called the dedication of merit, where we remember our, it's really it's a practice remembering interconnection, that we, we do these um, practices together very much for ourselves. And sometimes we bring the hands together like this. It's not necessary, but this is a traditional way one would do this. And we do these practices very much for ourselves and has impact on all the people in our lives. But we also do it for others. And we remember in the dedication of merit that we offer the benefits of our session to all beings. All human beings, all non-human beings. For their benefit, for their well-being, for their freedom. And always remember that all beings includes us. <laughs> so, thank you for hearing my equivalent of a slideshow. <laughs> and uh, we'll continue. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed to continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.org slash donate.